Hey, do you like what we do but want to hear it in Boston? Well, the fucking Avengers, the thing with fucking Chris Evans, you know he went to school around here and shit, right? He fucking grew up around here. Dude, that fucking house in fucking Knives Out, kid, that he was in, that's in fucking Western Massachusetts. I drove by it. My uncle, my uncle, okay, he's a fucking contractor, all right? He drives a truck. It's got ladders and shit on it, right? He has fucking pictures of Chris Evans working on that fucking movie and that, that asshole Rian Johnson that made that fucking stupid Star Wars movie I hated so much. That guy right yeah he was fucking there too and oh a fucking james bond kid oh shit i fucking saw james bond and shit i had to send a picture of that to my fucking aunt she was like oh my god bring him over here i'm gonna fuck him so fucking hard and i was like auntie we're on a fucking group chat with ma i don't fucking care ma can come over here and fucking fuck him too for all i care and then we went on and on and on and everybody was fucking and now i know too much about my family kid then you should check out this week's sponsor the Chippin Brothers Tangent, talking about literally anything, be it nerd news or the lasting trauma of Catholic school. Chris and Bob Chippin have you covered. Listen to the Chipman Brothers Tangent on your favorite podcasting site today. Welcome to Geeks with Shields, your home for all things good and nerdy in this The Darkest Timeline. I'm Lord Commander Orc, and with me as always is... His shield brother, Axel Wright. How's it going today, man? It is going okay. Uh, I had a date last night. It Ooh. went pretty well, and that, that put me in a, a good mood. A second date with, with this, this lady, and uh, hopefully you know, things are going to continue to go well. Also, this has been the, the first time in quite some time we've done a, like a quote-unquote standard Geeks with Shields episode, or at least the intro feels like it's been a while, so that's that's kind of neat. So Yep, we're coming back from the hiatus and building the backlog again. How are you but, doing? Uh, pretty good, all in all. It, it's getting cold here, and since the humidity is so high, it means it's also getting icy as hell. So that's been an interesting combination of fog and ice. All right, well, cold and, and dates and all that aside, why don't you take us right into, you know, the people who make a lot of what we do possible. These are our patrons, people that give us money month to month because they love us. They are Pam Galley, Marky, Chris Chipman, River Galley, Krug, Arthur Crane, Kevin Vay, Brendan Agnew, John Vinnels, Kit Kenny, and Solomansky. Now, if you'd like to join that illustrious legion, head on over to patreon.com forward slash geeks with shields. For only 25 cents an episode, you get access, early access to all our great content. For a little bit more, you get access to even more content. For a little bit more, you get access to even more stuff. Past that, well, it kind of does. But, come on, a dollar, early content, that's, that, that's, a, that's a great deal. And, coming back from our hiatus, we have an illustrious guest today. Would you care to introduce yourself? Hey, how's it going? Uh, I am Arturo Garza. Uh, but I use my, you can know me by my online handle, which is uh, Arthur Crane, uh, friend of the show. I've known these guys for a bit, and uh, as you heard earlier, I am one of their patrons. He's also been a steeple when it comes to our movie nights when we can get them working. So <laughs> that too, yes. Yeah, you've shown up for most of the road to Bayham, which is impressive because we don't want to show up for those. <laughs> oh, oh yes he suffers with us so i, I promise the next time i won't get nearly as drunk <laughs> <laughs> you were drunk i couldn't tell <laughs> bad voice too hurt oh, anyway it was terrible so with arthur here what are we talking about today Ulrich? 
Well, we're going to do an idea we've kind of, you know, had backburnered for a while, but seemed like a good, easy warm-up comeback episode. We're going to talk about video games we're nostalgic for, which is going to be interesting, because I'm curious to see how far or not far back nostalgia will go. Well, I was about to ask, because everyone knows that I'm a semantic bitch, so what do you mean by nostalgic in terms of this conversation? I would say, for the terms of this conversation, it is games you have fond memories for that you have not played in, like, the last five years. So you don't even have a chance to revisit them and see if they still hold up. This is all pure memory, and that was where your enjoyment came from. Was you remember enjoying it. You still aren't sure if you enjoy it. Okay, okay. That's like the bar. That is okay. the bar, yes. Well, fair enough, then. Uh, now, if anyone listening you know that generally speaking, I like to give the mic to our guest first. So, Arthur, would you like to head us off, or, or, or it's up to you? Uh, sure. Um, so, on the subject of nostalgic video games, um, it, well, it's uh, December right now when we're recording this, and Christmas is a few weeks away, and video games and Christmas have kind of gone together a lot historically, mostly because uh, the first time I began playing video games on like Christmas of 1996, just about. Uh, just for to give you guys a frame of reference, because I don't think we've talked about this before. Uh, the first video game console that I ever owned was the Nintendo 64. And I got it as a gift for and at Christmas. The funny thing is that it was very unexpected. Like, it's not something that I asked for, but I was grateful to get anyway. And um, I still remember, like, that first night of me playing with the N64. It was at uh, my grandparents' house. At, and I remember me and my, my sister and several of my cousins, we, like, got together on around the TV playing uh, N64. We had two games uh, at the time. It was like Super Mario 64 and Diddy Kong Racing. And mm -hmm. a good portion of the time spent with Mario 64 was just uh, basically just running around doing whatever. We mm -hmm. were still figuring out how to handle uh, 3D spaces and where to go and figure out what to do. Um, and then we eventually switched to Diddy Kong Racing, where more people could play. And then it just uh, kept uh, taking off from there. I began to get um, more interested in games to the point that I started to like get an idea of like what to ask for, what interested me, and I would ask that for to uh, my parents and grandparents, and I would get those as gifts during you know birthdays and Christmas and whatnot. Uh, I do remember that it was. Uh, Shortly after this one Christmas, where despite being only about uh, six eight to eight years old at the time, uh, I accidentally ended up playing my first uh, M-rated game. It was, oh. uh, it was a uh, Turok Dinosaur Hunter. Do you remember? Yeah, that was a good Turok. game. Yeah, it was oddly enough another gift that I got at my grandparents' house during Christmas, some other year, the year it came out, and uh, it was you know that. Stereo that total cliche that just grandparents don't know any better when they're buying <laughs> video games. And, and they were like, oh, dinosaurs. <laughs> he likes dinosaurs, right? Here you go. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, yeah, that was a thing that happened to me. <laughs> and uh, I didn't, I obviously didn't question it. And uh, I don't think we ever got to a point where they were like walking in on me, like seeing me like blasting dinosaurs and a bunch of dudes with guns. <laughs> 
whatever. Uh, they never got to that point. Like they, ne I was lucky that my parents were never like super strict in terms of like uh, violent content or yeah, things like that. Uh, I guess they just didn't have as much interest in video games as me, first of all. And um, yeah, the thing about Turok is that um, I was still lear making learning my way through 3D games. And uh, also, um, I'm not sure if you, you can tell or you know, but uh, English has been a second language for me. Uh, I, am, I natively speak Spanish and I learned uh, English at a bilingual school. And at the time, I was still uh, learning a lot of basic English. So at the time, a lot of games didn't have a, a lot of accessibility options for uh, languages, first and foremost. So a lot of it, that a lot of the games I played were in English, which wasn't always a problem, but it was a problem in a game like Turok that doesn't give you that much indication of what to do or where to go or doesn't hold your hand a whole lot. Like the the first thing that happens is that you click start game. It tells you like here, find this place, go do this thing, and that's it. They just throw you into the world and you figure out what to do. So it was easy to get lost. In uh, that probably game. certainly incentivized you to, uh, to to speed up your bilingual acquisition. So a little bit, yes. And uh, the frustrating part about that is that. Um, when you put in the game and you turn on the N64 and then you leave the game idle in like the start menu, it would start playing like these pre-recorded uh, clips from the game that show you like the later levels where you have like the cooler guns and the enemies are bigger and tougher. And I was always a little jealous of the game that I could never get that far on my own. Mm. By the <laughs> way, if anyone listening, because we're, because we're talking about older things, uh, and you probably pick this up from context clues, but Turok is essentially like like your Rambo fighting dinosaurs. It's pretty simple. <laughs> yes, that's that's the basic premise. You are this uh, Native American guy named Turok, and for some reason you are traveling across space and time, basically, uh, hunting not just dinosaurs, but eventually uh, these people from the future, basically, who you have dinosaurs to. It's... You know, one of those. I, I have this strong memory. I never owned Turok, but I had a friend who, who owned it. And I have this very strong memory of hanging out in his room while he was in, like, an arena with what looked like a big cyber T-Rex that he had to keep, like, going into uh, hallways to escape so that he could, like, pop out of a hallway, shoot it, and pop back in the hallway and because he was terrified of getting, you know, murdered. But that's, like, all I remember from, from Turok. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think I remember bosses like that like they were dinosaurs but they had like robot parts i just remember playing i think it was i don't know where it was but it's big memories of dinosaurs plus guns equals okay this is a fun game it's funny because you mentioned the whole like figuring out the the three-dimensional space and i was talking with someone recently i think i was watching a girlfriend reviews like mario 64 remastered or whatever uh -huh. and and she made a comment about how mario 64 kind of defined three-dimensional space in video games i don't know how accurate that is because i think like doom was kind of doing it first but but that's not the point the point is that really when it comes to a mass audience mario 64 did kind of do that and the fact that there are other games like like tarak and i played a lot of n64 games that were this kind of 
this brand new frontier of playing games in a whole literally another dimension uh was was kind of you know i think important especially for that you know time right so anyway so that you mentioned that and i just wanted to highlight it a bit <laughs> so <laughs> yeah yeah the weird thing about my history with video games is that i started to get into them like right when they were making the jump to 3d like everything that was 2d is something that i would learn about after the fact when in like future generations when things that were retro were starting to become cool again and started to influence a lot of like video games made today mm-hmm. hmm. so when was the last time you played turok then oh, i ask it wasn't that long ago. Uh, I think I actually owned the game on Steam as well. So I played it on Steam just for the sake of like picking it up again. Because when I when I was younger, I never got the chance to play it all the way through. So now I had the chance to do that, and I did. Well, it became like a franchise, didn't it? Aren't there like a bunch of Turok games? Yes, they did try to turn it into a franchise. There was, I think, at least one more on N64. Then there were a couple others that didn't really take off like towards like the GameCube and Xbox generation. They tried to bring him back one more time during when during the PS3 and Xbox 360 generation. Uh, But yeah, it's uh, one of those franchises that's never really stuck around. Which is weird because it's such a great concept. Who doesn't want to shoot dinosaurs? I do think it's interesting that so Turok came out at a time when I, I feel like anyway, there were a lot of games that were trying to do the same thing that Turok was doing. I don't know which game came first, but like for instance, when I think back on uh, essentially a N sixty four like three dimensional shooting game where you got to like pick up ammo and health packs and stuff like that, I go back to I don't even remember what it was called, but it was uh, one of the Star Wars games where like you're playing as some gruff, obviously not Han Solo, but is Han Solo kind of guy. I just remember like fighting a uh, an ATST like on foot, but oh, it was the same. Yeah. But it was like the I, same type of game, just set in Star Wars instead of dealing with dinosaurs. So, that game was awesome. I don't remember what that one was called, but I remember that one. My I think I I think I know which one you're talking about. I have vague memories of seeing that game at a friend's house when I was in early elementary school. You had a jetpack in that game. It was cool. I think it's called something like Shadows of the Empire. Yeah, something like that. Because that's a well. It's another one that I didn't own. But see, when I was when I was a kid, my my mother worked at a casino as a waitress, and because of that, she didn't get off work until very late, usually like ten or eleven. So after school, I would have to go to a daycare center, and then that transitioned to a teen center later. But there is usually a console there, and so that was like one of the games they had there that I played a lot of. So I'd never, I never owned it. I didn't know what it was. I just happened to play a lot of it. So, but my point is, that I think there were a bunch of games like that, and I think it's interesting which ones you pick. Like as far as I know, Turok is the only one that I like remember a name wise. Well, that and something like Goldeneye, but Goldeneye got big, <laughs> different set of reasons. But yeah. they're they're filling in the same same type of gameplay niche anyway. It was just what aesthetic that you was attached to it. Does that make sense? Like the aesthetics <laughs> of an early 3D shooter. Uh, kind of. I guess I, I'm using aesthetic in this case more in the artistic sense. Like it was the, the, all these early 3D shooters, and it was like, do you want to 3D shoot spies? Do you want to 3D shoot Star Wars? Do you want to 3D shoot dinosaurs? What? what? <laughs> so find the one that works for you, you know? Yeah, so totally. 
Yeah. So, so in my case, because I feel like before we're getting, I guess, as we're getting this conversation, we're also talking about like how we got into games in the first place, right? Like you said, your first was the 64. I actually, because it sounds like we're probably about the same age, uh, because while I started playing games in like 95, 96, I grew up poor, pretty poor. Uh, like my grandmother had money, so I'd get something from Harvey now and then. But generally speaking, you know, I lived a lot in... I'm not going to go into the details. Point is, my first console was an NES. Like, even though I was born, like, well after the NES came out, that was still the first thing I had. That was literally... a solid console. Those things lasted flipped forever. I mean, you're right. I was just pointing out that, like, I literally started with Mario Brothers and Duck Hunt. That is my earliest video game memory, which is... Like, admittedly before my time, quote unquote, but it's still how I started. And and I, I wasn't actually a big fan of that. It was just the only thing I had. But I remember being a huge fan of Mario Brothers 2, which has a whole weird set of history <laughs> attached to it. But, like, I remember playing so much of that. But no, if we're talking about, like, nostalgic games, uh, then I have to bring up, because I haven't played this in... How old am I now? I haven't played this in 20 years, but I'm really into fighting games now, right? Like, I, I love fighting games. I have a natural affinity for them. That's funny because a lot of my friends don't, which makes it really difficult for me to find people to play with. And and growing up, I played, like, a lot of Tekken and 3D fighters. Now I'm more into 2D fighters like Street Fighter and Guilty Gear. But what started it was when I was, I was very young. I think when I first got a PlayStation 1 and my babysitter, Cat had this game called Battle Arena Toshinden uh, 2, I think, 2 or 3, I don't remember. And no one I talked to ever has even heard of it. <laughs> so It sounds but, pretty obscure. Yeah, yeah. But it was basically Soul Calibur before Soul Blade, even. Because, for those who know, the actual first Soul Calibur game was not called Soul Calibur, but called Soul Blade. Because it was technically Soul Edge in Japan, but they changed it. Anyway, but like a, a fighting game with weapons, that was Battle Arena Toshinden for me. Which had this interesting kind of like... It was the first game... Well, it was the first fighting game I ever played, but it also was how I got introduced to concepts like three-dimensional fighting game or being able to be knocked out of the ring, things like that. There was this big Viking dude with a giant sword named, like, Gaia or something that was uh, probably my favorite. And there was this one guy with a barrel on his back and a bow staff who just spit fireballs at people. I don't remember any of these characters, and I'm pretty sure the game probably wouldn't hold up now, but if we're talking about, like, nostalgic, fond memories... That's one that I just want to like put out into the ether. So, <laughs> what was like the main character of that game? Uh, his name was Ein. It was like E I N, and he wore he looked kind of like Ryu, like from Street Fighter. Like he wore a white gi and he had spiky hair and like a red bandana, but he was a lot thinner and he wielded just a katana. So nowadays, I'm not into, for lack of a better term, Japanese aesthetic. From years of being in anime, I got very burnt out on Japanese aesthetic, and now I'm much more like, I like things that have a more like European aesthetic, but that's not the point. So he was like the main character, and I remember his big special move, besides throwing a fireball at people, was to do this thing where he'd like, he'd uppercut you with a sword, and then as you go up, he would kind of, I called it staircase cutting, where he'd keep cutting you as you two are traveling up, and then once you got to like, I don't know, like 20 feet off the ground, he'd slam you down. I can only ever figure out how to do it a couple times because I wasn't good at doing, you know, combos or special moves back then. It was just, I played this game with my babysitter and, you know, she kicked my ass at it. But 
as a sidebar, the first fighting game that I think people would actually know that I played was actually Killer Instinct when that came out on Nintendo 64. I played that with my mom, actually, a lot. And uh, and she kicked my ass at that until I I learned how to... What's the term? I've, it's been a while since I've been in the fighting game community. Uh, I learned my Oki, which basically, for those who don't know, is like your how you deal with your opponent being on the ground. Like, I didn't know that's what I was doing back then. But then she got mad at me, essentially not letting her up, and she doesn't play. She proceeded to never play video games with me again for the rest of my life. And anytime yeah. I even mention it, she would say, "Let me off the ground." I was like five, <laughs> so point is, nope, I remember that's why I stopped playing with my brothers. He did dirty tricks like that. They're not dirty tricks. That it's part of the game experience. Anyway, dirty <laughs> tricks. This is why you would never survive in the fighting game community, Ulrich. There's so, multiple reasons I wouldn't survive in the fighting game community. First of which, throat punches. Well, okay, fair enough. So, <laughs> teach you motherfuckers to pin me. So my point is that I, I definitely have a lot of nostalgic uh, love for, for fighting games. I, I, I remember when I first got my hands on Tekken 3 for PlayStation 1, I put so much time into Tekken 3. It's funny because I'm not into Tekken anymore because Tekken went in some really weird directions after Tekken 5. But that was like for a good chunk of my, my youth, was uh, Tekken 3, 4, and 5. So, and 2, to a lesser extent. I was definitely one of those people that like to go to arcades and find, like, the, te- the the Tekken cabinet to play with people or something. So, Well, we're going to talk about arcades. That's a separate episode. I do want to talk about arcades, but that's another episode. Okay, well, as a kind of a round-robin thing, we had Arthur talk a bit about Turok. I've talked a bit about fighting games, particularly Toshinden. Ulrich, give us one. Well... I don't really, I'm not, I got a bunch of games I can talk about, but I'm going to kind of do the same things. Like, my first console I was exposed to was the Sega Genesis, which I still maintain was one of the best consoles ever. I'm not touching that one. I also <laughs> admit that that is heavily layered in nostalgia because I barely remember it, but I just remember it had a lot of great games on it that I loved playing. Um, yeah, so no, and I mean... My older brother was always way more into video games than I was, so I would either, you know, watch him play or I got them, you know, the consoles handed down to me, you know, when he got the new one. But remember, like, the biggest one, like, the way I really got into it was the PlayStation 1. And for whatever reason, like, everyone in my school had a PlayStation so we could all swap games. And that's, you know, Hydro Thunder, Twisted Metal 3, the Medal of Honor series... There were so many good games on that uh, console. Well, to be fair, PlayStation 1 and 2 had an ungodly amount of third-party support. It's uh, why, yep. to this day, I still I still think the PlayStation 2 is the greatest console to ever exist. But that's just me yeah. personally. No, I, I it's definitely, definitely up there. Now, we played the hell out of our PlayStation until our PlayStation, you know, died. And then when that happened, we got the PlayStation, you know with the little portable TV so we could take it over with us. And we played that till it died. There was so many good games on it. And that is most, like, a lot of my nostalgia is written there. For, like, games that I probably don't even remember exist until I see a random screenshot. I was like, oh, yeah, that game. But I think the one I played to death and really desperately, I just want it back. I want Twisted Metal 3 back. I don't know if it's any good still. But that is a game I have fond memories of. Like, I want to play that again. And I'm sure that it's ugly as sin and handles like hell, but I don't know. You know, I was thinking about mentioning that myself because I love Twisted Metal 3. And I still think Twisted Metal 3 is one of the best 
Twisted Metal games. I think yeah, Black Black is probably the best just because. But uh, but three was like I played a lot of four and Small Brawl and two. Honestly, my favorite card in a Twisted Metal game was like only in two, and that was Grasshopper. And I was really pissed off that Grasshopper doesn't oh, show up yeah. in like any other Twisted Metal games. But yeah, but uh, I went back and played three about I don't know like ten years ago. I think just before my PlayStation Two got stolen um and all my games unfortunately but i had played it roughly around then and i think it still holds up as of then i mean again my memory but i was like you know like in my late teens i think i was fair enough and uh it's blocky and it certainly looks old by comparison but i think it still played pretty well i would i'd be willing to bet that if me and you sat and played it right now we'd have a, a lot of fun so. Yeah, and I think that's what I that's why it holds such a positive point in my you know place in my memory is I remember playing that with my brothers and that is something I don't I really I honestly I miss couchside co-op games which is probably another reason I have such fond memories of the PlayStation you know one and two was we had those games and we played them with my brothers and it was you know there was no there's no fighting over what you know who got to play the game it was. We're all going to plug in. We're going to play this competitive game. And, you know, we had a lot of, like, Hydro Thunder was our was our go-to racing game. There was that kick-ass X-Men fighting game we all played. There was that Beast Wars fighting game. I we actually had a lot of fighting Beast games. Yes, yeah, Beast Wars Transmetal Wars, I think is what it was called. And it was a Beast Wars fighting game. And it was awesome because we're all into Beast Wars. And we were behind a season and a half, so we didn't know what these Transmetal ones were. But, like... Well, that looks cool, and that guy turns into a tank. So <laughs> the only Can't thing I really remember, the only thing I really remember about Transmetals is that I had a uh, Transmetal Two Cheetor that basically had a rocket launcher on his back, and that was one of my favorite physical toys I owned. So <laughs> anyway, I don't really remember the the game you're talking about. I think I remember seeing it, but I don't remember getting to play it at all. So. But PlayStation no. 1 and 2 had that, that crazy thing where, like I said before, with third-party support. So they just had an insane library of, of games and just weird stuff that you could like. But that's why I particularly love getting those demo discs that they used to oh. – so you just play like a bunch of the weird – Kids things. today will never know the joy of the demo disc <laughs> because there were so many games I played and always wanted to, you know, play, find, go and find – only discovered that's as far as it ever made it. It only ever made it to the demo t- uh, disc. It never actually went into full production. What's funny is that those demo discs, right? They'd give you, they'd get, they'd give you one game where they gave you like five hours of it, and then they give you like ten games where you got like one hour of it, right? Yep. It, and I, always, I was always convinced I could push it a little bit further if I did one thing different. I could push the lockout phase. <laughs> like, cause, uh, I mean, my favorite PlayStation One game, period. I start off with a demo disc that it was one of the ones where I had like five hours of it. And I replayed that five hours over and over until I finally saw that game in like my local game store. I don't even know what game store I was going to at the time. It was one of those mall stores that doesn't exist anymore, but I saw it on the, anyway, that was Legend of the Dragoon, by the way. <laughs> also a great game. Yeah. No, that was the like first and last time I played JRPGs was on the PlayStation 2. First and last time? Yeah, there's a, I don't know if I told this story on the podcast, but I played Final Fantasy VIII and I encountered a game-breaking glitch. There was no way around without restarting my game. And I swore off ever playing Final Fantasy again because of that. Which is too bad because Final Fantasy VI particularly 
and nine are like two of the greatest games that ever existed. So, but I do understand what he's talking about. So, <laughs> but now they're talking about, you know, remastering it, redoing it. It's like, all right, I might finally be able to beat Final Fantasy VIII, and then I can go play these other games everyone's told me I need to play. It's funny because eight, by the way, is one of the most divisive. Like generally within the Final Fantasy community, people either really like eight or really don't like eight. I fall on the side of defending it, but it's just saying that the one you happen to choose happened to be one that is has a very split community on. Which has <laughs> so, always been so yeah, weird. Yeah. Whenever I enter a Final Fantasy conversation, I'm like eight. And people go, You like eight? Or like, yeah, he likes eight. What of it? Like, oh no, I've stumbled into something. <laughs> yeah. They actually brought those back to uh, the Switch recently. It was like 7, 8, 9, 10, 10, 2, and 12. All of those are in the Switch eShop right now. And I think Ooh. other platforms as well. And you I had to remember... tell me that. Oh, I, have, I have to own 10 in all its forms. I might have to go grab that now. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, and I actually do remember a little bit like when they first announced uh, those games uh, coming out again. Uh, they actually didn't announce 8 right away, and that's when that whole conversation started up again. They were like, wait, what have, What about Final Fantasy VIII? And the basic response from the internet is, you know why. <laughs> well, I think the general reason people... Okay, I'm not going to get into this right now, but the fact is that 8 went about what it did in such a drastically different way than basically every other Final Fantasy with the draw and the Guardian Force system that I think it just alienated a lot of people. Plus, Squall is possibly the least interesting of all Final Fantasy protagonists. Like, just to be fair. So <laughs> The thing I remember most is the Gunblade. Yeah. It's just a, a sword that looks like a gun. Yeah. yeah, what that is that is peak video game. That is peak mid '90s video game design. Also, also a lot just, about that game, the big spiky hair, the leather. It was that perfect meshing of. We didn't see it yet, but that's what was going to dominate the early 2000s. Uh -huh. I suppose. <laughs> I mean, Final Fantasy also really went off the rails after about about 12 was the last one that had a somewhat understandable design scheme. Like, there's actually a joke in the community now that Final Fantasy has a bad habit of heavily over-designing things. Uh, I'm not oh, going to go into sure. that right now. So. But I feel like that really started with 13. So. I mean, Tetsuya Nomura is, has worked on the Final Fantasy series since 7. And that's yeah. the guy that made Kingdom Hearts. So, <laughs> yeah. Yep. Oh, Kingdom Hearts. That was a, that, that was a weird time. Okay, I don't mean to, I don't mean to cut ahead of because it really is it's like Arthur's turn next for another thing. But I do want to say that so you mentioned like the little portable TV. There was a while when I say that like I grew up without a lot of uh, money, right? There was a point about a six year period of my childhood from like six to twelve where I lived primarily in a twenty foot trailer on my grandfather's property with my mother, and and we had the one TV, and so you know she used it and generally speaking. So what I had was my grandmother got me, because I had a PlayStation 2, and my grandmother got me a, a screen that would attach to the top of the PlayStation 2. So this little, like, I don't know, like, 8-inch like screen that was just on top and plugged into it and powered it. And, and so no matter where I went, I could play my PlayStation 2. And I had Kingdom Hearts 1 for it. And Kingdom Hearts 1 was the game that I played more than anything else. Like that and Ratchet and Clank, like all of them. Uh, I can't say 
it works for this discussion because last time I played Kingdom Hearts 1 was literally last year and it is still one of my favorite games ever. But as a franchise, it's actually pretty terrible because after the first game, it goes off the rails entirely. But anyway, just want to get my little my little bit there out, out on that. So anyway, so Arthur, you started off with a, an N64. You mentioned uh, Turok. What would you say is like, I don't know, the next phase? Next phase in like my gaming evolution? Sure. I- and that's not really what we're... I don't know. That just feels like the right way to go about this. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm actually going to skip ahead a little after the N64. I'm going to skip ahead to like about 2006, which is when the the Wii came out. Mm-hmm. It was like the generation of the 360 and PS3. And um, again, uh, it had become a bit of a habit, but whenever there was like a new a new console that was coming out, uh, it would be like a Christmas present for me. And I remember that in 2006, which was a while ago, now that yeah. I think about it. Uh, yeah, yeah, I remember the Christmas morning getting getting the Wii and trying out it for the first time. And I think I had only, again, two games at the time, maybe uh, at least one other. But the first one was Wii Sports, which, you know, came with the console. And the other was... Uh, the Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess. Mm. And uh, well, my history with the Zelda franchise is a little bit weird because Twilight Princess was the first time that I not only that I sat down with a Zelda game and ended up playing it all the way through. I was a little bit familiar with the Zelda franchise before that. I knew it more through reputation. And uh, not that I wasn't interested in it, but I never really had a chance to get into it. The first ever Zelda game that I ever played, which in hindsight was probably not the best idea, was uh, Majora's Mask on N64, which is like this big uh, fan favorite among certain Zelda fans. I was about to say, my Zelda friends usually list Majora's Mask as the best Zelda game, so... (laughs) I understand why, but uh, again, this was during my phase when I was still not just learning uh, 3D worlds, but also um, reading the English text and following along with the story and what the game was asking of me. So it did result in a lot of me uh, getting lost and not making a lot of progress. Uh, Usually the furthest I could get without any help was uh, you get to the part where you get to the, the Ocarina for the first time, and then you set off, you set off into the world to save it. And uh, on the subject uh, of Majora's Mask, I wouldn't play the game again until it was re-released on the 3DS. It was remastered on the 3DS. And I did get to play it all the way to completion. And I did start to understand where like the Majora's Mask fans are coming from when they talk about it as this great game. Uh, it's not really... Uh, my preference for a Zelda game, but I do understand why. Like, it's not so much about uh, the where the story is going. It's more about just uh, exploring this like little fraction of the Zelda world, this uh, this small town and all its residents, and basically all the themes that the story gets into because of the of the story about how it's the end of the world. Uh, the moon is gonna crash down and and the world and you get to all these different stories about how people are dealing with that and i feel like that's like the main reason why 
it stands out so much in the franchise. See, I've long, not only I've gotten shit for it, but I have never played a Zelda game, and I've never really wanted to play a Zelda game, which is interesting, because anytime I say that, there's always kind of this intake of breath from my gamer friends, like, you don't appreciate Zelda. Like, no, I appreciate Zelda, just I've never played a Zelda game, nor have I had the desire to play Zelda. So before yeah, I, that's, before I, that's fair. Before I go into my, my thoughts on that, I just want to say that uh, my, my buddy Woonvog, cre- a previous guest, a common guest on the show, is currently napping on my couch. So if you hear snoring behind me, that's what's going on there. <laughs> anyway, so Zelda, I have a very odd relationship with Zelda in that when I was very young, I had one of those old Game Boys, like before Game Boy Color, you know, the, the big brick ones. Great brick. Yeah, yeah. And I played uh, Oracle of Ages and Oracle of Seasons. I never got very far in them uh, because I was like five and I wasn't smart enough to figure out the puzzles and stuff. I actually have this very strong memory of playing one of them. And I was on some quest where it was like, find a certain number of golden feathers. And I found all but one. And I spent hours trying to find the last one and gave up. So I don't know exactly where that was, but it's just a strong memory I have. Anyway, point being, though, I never played like I had a 64. And when I had a 64, I primarily played Mario 64, Super Smash Brothers, Donkey Kong, and like Mario Party, I think were what I had. But I never got into the the 3D Zelda games, like ever. And I think the first time I played a 3D Zelda game really was when I was in college. Uh, Woonvog actually had me play Wind Waker on, on his like Wii or, Wii or whatever it was. So, because um, I know it was originally GameCube, but he had like the, the version for that console or whatever like that. And even that I didn't beat because I... Uh, similar to what Ulrich just said, I respect Zelda. I understand why Zelda as a franchise is as big as it is and is as beloved as it is. I would never claim any Zelda game is like bad or anything like that. They just don't particularly do it for me. And I think a big part of why that is because I don't get into the the narrative of Link. Like Link himself doesn't appeal to me because he's a certain kind of protagonist he's a blank protagonist but he's not a you protagonist and i prefer it to be one or the other either i like a protagonist who is a defined character or one who is supposed to be me and somewhere in between it's a weird valley for me again that's a me problem not a zelda problem i want to be very clear about that so it's the same reason i actually haven't gotten to the witcher games because they fit this kind of same thing going on. But that's a whole other thing entirely. Which, so. I'm surprised. I think you would, like, from what I know of you, you would love The Witcher. Oh, I love The Witcher as a concept. I love The Witcher as a world. I love The Witcher as a television show. The one with the, um, the Henry Cavill was wonderful. But when I tried to play The Witcher 1 and 2, because I, I played 1 for, like, 5 hours, and I was super bored by it. Yeah. And I, tried playing, I tried playing 2 for 8 hours, because Wretched bought it for me. And I hate Geralt. I just don't well, like Geralt in in uh, the game form for some reason. And okay, I, don't like so I was gonna say like one and two, they aren't good games. But if you hate Geralt, like no, there's no getting around that. It's kind of you know like hating Mario. Well, I got to know why because I I like Geralt in the show. I like Geralt conceptually, but something about how he's portrayed in the games just really strikes a nerve with me. I don't know what it is. I mean, I could I could speculate but i don't care to do that right now (laughs) (laughs) it's his damn white hair it offends your sensibilities anyway back back to the point though with zelda so we got a similar thing going on where like i have a whole lot of respect for zelda but i have no 
connection to it as a franchise, which is funny because then when Breath of the Wild came out, literally all my friends were like, you've got to play Breath of the Wild. Like, I have no interest in playing Breath of the Wild. Not only do I not have an interest in Zelda in general, but I hate weapon degradation systems anywhere they are. So That's fair. Arthur, so you were saying, so Majora's was the first one you played, but it's not the, the point of this particular, uh, what we're talking about, right? It was, what was the game we were actually talking about? Yeah, this was one big tangent on Majora's Mask. Uh, the point that I was getting to is was that Twilight Princess was the first uh, Zelda game that I really, really got into. And, Twilight Princess, uh, there we go. Yeah, and uh, it's my understanding that when it comes to like uh, its ranking among more hardcore Zelda fans, it's uh, kind of middling. Like, it's some people's favorite, but it's not generally seen as like a classic of the franchise. But well, it still holds us... Sorry, correct me if I'm wrong. Doesn't a lot of that come down to the fact that when it was released on the Wii, it had a lot of that like Wii control problem, from what my understanding is, right? That's part of the reason. Like people, some people just couldn't get into motion controls. They can, still can't get into them today. That was a big factor, though. The it was also released on GameCube, but GameCube was already on its way out, so. There's that. Ah, fair enough. I also know people have talked about how like Wind Waker aged better because it was doing cell shading, whereas Twilight Princess was going for the quote unquote, you know, more realistic look, which means that it shows its age more as time goes. But that's the you know different thing entirely, I guess. Yeah. Just another minor tangent on Zelda. I did eventually play Wind Waker, but it was after I played Twilight Princess. And I do think I liked Wind Waker a, a little more. But uh, that's not the point. The point is that I really got into Twilight Princess. It was the, the first time that I stuck with a Zelda game because I understood what I was doing, what the game was asking of me. And um, really, in hindsight, I really I do agree with this observation that it was trying to be like a more, for lack of a better word, realistic or I guess gritty version of Zelda of the series where it was in terms of aesthetic and the general look it all it has like very muted colors all around it looks a little bit drab by by today's standards but if you compare it to something like Breath of the Wild and uh, I don't I didn't really mind that at the time and I don't think I minded today either like I understand that it was the style that they wanted to go with at the time I appreciate that the Zelda series is always trying like different art styles or looks for each game and um, but aside from the style and the controls the thing that really stuck for me was the general tone of the story again going back a little bit to style it does match like the sort of slightly darker version of zelda i think it was the first zelda game to be rated uh above an e it was rated t and yeah a lot of a lot of parts of the game just click for me i like the dungeons some i think some people think are a little too straightforward but i thought they had a good balance of like difficulty and letting you figure out uh, what to do versus um, giving you hints. Uh, I did, even if it was motion control, I really did enjoy the combat. I like that uh, you could you could have Link learn different moves and different uh, combat abilities to get around different types of enemies. Uh, I like the wolf. I like that you get to play as a wolf. And uh, probably the the best part of the game, uh, Midna, your She's probably the an all-time great Zelda say, sidekick. Yeah, I was about to say, while, while Twilight Princess is divisive, it does seem like the fan base really likes Midna, like, in general. Yeah, Midna really makes the story of 
Twilight Princess. She starts out at like this uh, smart aleck imp looking thing that is clearly trying to take advantage of you for her own personal goals. But over the course of the series, you start to find out what she really is about, what really happened to her. And uh, you just uh, really get attached to her and start to feel for her cause. Uh, and it's through Midna that you get all these really cool moments in the story. I still maintain that the, the final battle with Ganon and all the different faces that it goes to is one of my favorite Zelda boss battles. And yeah, Midna's role of about halfway through where she, this very dramatic moment where she almost sacrifices herself to help you get an advantage, uh, that was really cool. And I really felt uh, for her in that moment. Uh, speaking of characters in Twilight Princess that I really like, uh, Zant, it was like this minor antagonist in the game before Ganondorf shows up. Uh, uh, he's a character who I've come to appreciate a little bit more over the years. In case you don't know who he is, is this guy wearing like this big goofy looking helmet. And the very memorable thing about this guy is that very early on, he's kind of stoic and very serious. But then when you finally face him towards the end of the game and you realize that he's not like the real villain of the story, the one that's been controlling everything, he basically turns into this very childish and over-the-top guy who has, like, he's basically throwing tantrums as he's fighting you. And, uh, yeah, it was very different from what I expected. So it was, like, that extra extra layer of personality that really cemented him, this character, in, his, in my mind. So, yeah, it's little things here and there that make the game uh, a little weird, but a little more engaging than I would find with other Zelda games like the I uh, for example something that I only got into like after several playthroughs was this uh, big old side quest where there's this girl in one of the towns you visit that keep asking you for bugs to catch bugs and send them to her and she will give you items and upgrades there's an entire uh sub quest that's about hunting spirits across Hyrule you Midna helps you do that. Uh, yeah, it's kind of a weird game overall, and I think that's just part of what gives it its appeal. So uh, I'm not sure how lost you are with all of this, but uh, <laughs> no worries, man. Because uh, I'm not sure if you're picking up on anything that I'm saying or if you can relate at all. But uh, well, yeah, Twilight Princess. It was basically the game that really got me into the Zelda series overall, and that's why it holds a special place in my mind. As a side note, because you talk about Twilight Princess, and as I said before, that's one of the most divisive. I just, I'm curious, uh, are you more of a defender or detractor of Skyward Sword? I lean more towards defender of Skyward Sword. It's a very imperfect game. I do maintain that, and a lot of that does come to, uh, I think, two things. First of all, uh, even more going in, Doubling down on motion controls. This is Nintendo, like, doubling down on motion controls with the new adapter to the Wii Remote that makes it uh, even more sensitive. I didn't mind it at the time. I'm not sure if I would feel different today, but at least when I first played it around 2009, 2010, it was fine. I feel like the other thing that had a lot of people uh, divisive on was a bit of the level design because the part of the gimmick was that you would be revisiting different areas that you were you were at previously, but now they would have new things and 
uh, new sections to explore because of different items that you have. Uh, again, didn't really mind it all that much. I thought it was overall okay. Uh, pretty much everything else about Skyward Sword, I will, I do lean on towards the side of me defending. Uh, for example, one of my favorite thing about the game is the story, the particularly the relationship between Zelda and Link. It's probably my favorite version of that story across any Zelda game. Like it does feel a little more, um, I guess, organic because it does feel like there is a pre-established pre dynamic between the two characters before the story begins, where Zelda is this very proactive and engaging kind of girl who's basically dragging Link around. Who, and it's implied that he's kind of just a bit of a lazy bum all in all. And it's <laughs> basically your when Zelda is in danger, that's kind of like the, the kick in the ass you need to go out and save her as Link and like, you know, get your shit together. The lots of other great characters, uh, Girahim, very over the top villain. I ended up uh, very memorable. Uh, I forget his name. I think it's Groos, but he's like this bully guy that keeps pushing Link around, ends up becoming kind of a big part of the story towards the end. And, he kind of becomes your friend, and I think his arc was pretty cool. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, then there's a uh, Fi or Fee. Again, I get why people don't like her. Personally, I didn't mind her all that much. Uh, I was I was really just curious because it felt like it. It seems like to me that people who are more likely to defend Twilight Princess are also more likely to defend Skyward Swords. So I was just adding your uh, your opinion to my like statistics collection. So, <laughs> yeah, the <clears throat> the one part that I will unequivocally uh, do uh, that I do did really didn't like about Skyward Sword was uh, this one. This one boss battle, I forget the name right now, but it's the big, this big black monster with like, uh, that keeps like crawling around, like from the top of, from the bottom of a valley, basically, like a spiral mountain. And you have to fight that guy like three different times in the game. And he's just a big pain in the ass. I think it, something, something, the damned or the cursed, I forget the name, but. Yeah, that guy was the worst. Uh, right. But yeah, everything else about the game, um, I'm, I'm from fine to yeah, I enjoyed it. All right, I know, I know. Technically, it's it's my turn next for a thing, but I want to take a moment to go uh, to bug Woundvog see if I can wake him up. So Ulrich, why don't you take us another one? <laughs> All right. Um. Oh, this is a. So there was a brief period of time when Axel and I uh, were living together, and I brought my PlayStation 3 and a handful of games. And one of those games was Resistance Fall of Man. Uh-huh. Which I feel, like, for a long time, I, I felt was an underappreciated, you know, little gem of a game. Which game? Uh, Resistance Fall of Man. Oh, me and Ulrich played that together. That was early on in our in our friendship. I'd go over to his yep, house. That's and... how I predicated the story. Yeah, I remember that. I think being a launch title for the PlayStation Three. It was. It was the sole reason I got a PlayStation Three. Is my brother had it and I played it. And like, okay, I need this game and I need this console. And no, Axel and I played through that game all the way beginning to end, and it is still one of my favorite 
first-person shooters because it does a lot right. And the big one of being is like, hey, here's a bunch of different weapons. No two of them are the same. Also, each of them has a secondary function that you kind of have to, you know, just because you've mastered this gun doesn't mean you've mastered the secondary function. And third, here's some crazy monsters to shoot. Not just crazy monsters. Like, that game was touted as having one of the best computer AIs in its campaign. Like, the enemies could engage in adaptive tactics and flank you and stuff. And, like, I was yeah. someone who played, like, I never got really into Halo, but I did play through Halo 1 and 2's campaign with friends. And Resistance's enemies felt a lot more intelligent than something like that. Well, so. their big touting point was it had smart AI, meaning that it, you know, kind of adjusted its tactics to yours, which at the time we all took to, you know, I mean, oh, that must mean it's like a super one, but... Basically, it boiled down to if you hunkered down, it came for you. If you charged it, it fell back, which may seem like a minor thing, but then was incredible because it meant that it wasn't ever static. And also, the game had a little bit of Yeah, it was adaptive. Yes. Also, the clashing of essentially a World War II-esque atmosphere with, like, Halo-esque guns was pretty enjoyable to me. There's this one gun. It's like like a minigun that shoots crystals. But its secondary fire just shoots out the entire clip as like a a, a ball, and the ball becomes a turret that just fires the crystals at things. It's one of my favorite guns in that game. No, that game was a blast, and it also launched one of the longest ongoing arguments that we've had: of did Nathan Hale do this all by himself, or was the uh, narrator racist? Because please in, elaborate. In the uh, this game had a co-op, you know, campaign. And the secondary, you know, whoever the second player was, with main, player one played, you know, the main character, Nathan Hale. And the secondary character played Nameless Black Friend. But they never appeared in any of the cutscenes or the narrations. And Axel always proposed that it's because the narrator was racist. And I said, no, you're my imaginary friend. Oh, so it's like Fight Club. <laughs> yeah. That was so my she- operating theory. Well, because the entire framing of the story is that it's it's a, literally a story being told after the fact by a person who, like, just met Nathan. So it made perfect sense to me that they just, like, are ignoring Nathan's friend. And then it's like, okay, well, why are they ignoring his friend? I mean, this is, I like, mean, the 1930s the or something, so... So, like, you know, she, she could be racist. I don't know. But, yeah, no, because of, you know, being on the internet, I found that, no, there is... A passionate fan base that still remembers this game was like, hey, do you want to sell a million copies of the PlayStation 5? Re-release the uh, Resistance trilogy. And then, you know, the pandemic happened and they sold a million copies of PlayStation 5 without the Resistance trilogy. So, I don't know. Fingers still crossed that that gets re-released. I want that game. And uh, again, that's pure nostalgia just because of the hours... I spent playing it with Axel and freaking out, going, oh, God, it's dark and there's noises and we're out of bullets. What do we do that, now? That particular level that he's talking about, like, you're going in this kind of, like, subway tunnel and there's, like, big rhino chimera creatures in in the subway tunnel, but you can't see them. And, yeah, I remember being terrified playing that. Like, it was good atmospheric gameplay. And the levels had a great, like, kind of different feeling for each. It also had this thing that I feel like a lot of games, uh, a lot of shooters have that... I don't know if this is a problem necessarily, but even though there were a ton of weapons, the basic-ass carbine that you started with was basically the best weapon throughout the entire game if you could keep ammo for it. And I feel like yeah. a lot of shooters had that same kind of thing happen. <laughs> but they did like the pistol with... from Halo. 
Yeah, well, they nerfed that. that. They figured that one out and nerfed it. But no, Resistance was smart was we wouldn't always get the ammo you needed for your best guns. So you'd be running around with the crappy, you know, like, oh, I'm down to just this and the rocket launcher. Fuck. Okay. Well, most, of the time, most of the time you were using the, the bullseye gun because that's what most of the enemies dropped. So that was really your backup. <laughs> oh, but then there's still like any other thing I got to give this game credit for was the boss battle. Like, it was a vehicle. You couldn't really take it down with small arms. You had to go and pick up the rocket launcher or the heavy ordnance weapon to take down the giant monster. Never played either of the sequels, but uh, yeah, that's one of those games that like just has good memories of playing with Ulrich. I mean, even even nowadays, I only own a Switch so I could get like couch co-op kind of stuff. And while I don't agree with uh, the assertion Ulrich has made in the past that couch co-op is you know, like not really a thing anymore. I think it is. It's just a much more niche thing. I no, do it's agree not, it's that not supported as it should be. I feel. Yeah. Point is, I definitely agree that there's not enough of it, and uh, it's honestly the the big reason why to own a Switch because it's kind of the main supporter of it right now. <laughs> Were any of the Resistant games released on PlayStation Four? No, that was something like I held on. I think I still have at least Resistance One in the hopes that someday it becomes backwards coming up. Because I had all of the games, and I played through 1 and 2, got halfway through 3, and then got bored, and then got rid of my PlayStation 3. I don't didn't, remember the uh, Auric, didn't you trade me your copy of Resistance for something that you then regretted? I foolishly traded my copy of Resistance for one of the Black Ops or Call of Duty games because I thought it was a better party game than Resistance. Uh. Which and, I didn't even, like, buy. That was a, a gift to me from another person. Well, not a gift. That was, like, a hand-me-down from another person. I was like, I'm not going to play this Black Ops game. Sure, I'll take Resistance. Yeah, no, I was a fool because Resistance also had a great multiplayer. Yeah, what I remember about the Resistance series, which I never really got to play, but I remember that what made it stand out was that it came out at a time when military shooters were becoming very popular, like Modern Warfare. And what made this one stand out is that the gameplay was... Uh, more in line with like a more classic first-person shooter. It was more yeah. uh, running gun than like the cover-based shooting of something like Call of Duty. And yes. and it was other than that, it was also you know alien invasion, very over the top action. So well, it fun. gave it kind of a it always looked fun to me. vibe. So in, in the best in the best way. So <laughs> also, I am a uh, vehement hater of the two weapon rule that halo popularized. Yep. So I like the fact that resistance went back to the, no, you just have all your guns. You pick up the gun once and now you have it period. So. Well, it was also fun because it meant when you're being swarmed by enemies and you're pulling out the weapon wheel, the game doesn't pause. You're still being attacked as you're trying to fumble like must get shotgun. No, not the bubble gun. That's the last thing I wanted. It is funny because resistance is basically the only thing close to a military shooter I ever really liked because i never liked any of the call of duties or battlefields but that's not true actually i played call of duty 2 for a while at my local um caf uh, internet cafe but that was only because i was playing it with friends i never owned it i never wanted to own it but basically i find military shooters to be dull in general but resistance was just weird enough to to really work <laughs> yeah man i missed that game anyway so in, in my case, right, uh, I mentioned that the NES was my first, and I had a PlayStation, and I eventually had a PlayStation 2, and those really were most of I went through three different PlayStation 2s. Like, my first two just died from, I guess, overuse and dust. 
like because the when the first one died, I actually sent it in to Sony, and they theoretically fixed it, but it broke again later. So it's I had to go through several. Is my point? Like I played that console so much. I did get an Xbox, just an original Xbox uh, at one point, and I never got a lot of games for it. Like I, I remember it came with a uh, Jet Set Radio and Blinks the Time Sweeper, both games that I actually really really liked. Um, and I think I'd like Blinks a lot more now that I understand it better because back then I thought it was kind of a weird game. But if there was a game that I was playing at that stage in my life that I am nostalgic for, uh, I actually bought it on Steam like seven years ago, but it doesn't have controller support. So I and controlling with mouse and keyboard is a nightmare. So I haven't tried to pick it up since, but it's the original Fable. So Fable, right? was I know that there were games on PC that did this first, things like Deus Ex and whatnot, but for, I think, a lot of people in my age group, Fable was, like, our first real experience with, quote-unquote, choice-driven play. I mean, admittedly, most of the choices were one extreme or the other extreme, but you got to start somewhere. And the fact that Fable kind of introduced this concept to me and a lot of my friends, I think, was a really big deal. So, for anyone who doesn't know because fable 3 was a total flop and they basically haven't touched it in like 10 years because of that the ip anyway uh the first fable was this like you're in this generic fantasy setting but you start off as this kid who you actually grow over you age up over time you age like in the story up to 18 and then from that point you start aging like with gameplay up to i don't know like 60 or something like that and as you go you make morality choices and you have a morality bar and if you're really good you get a halo and butterflies fly around your face and you have like nice eyes and stuff but if you're evil you grow horns and there's flies around your face and your skin cracks and stuff and it just had all of the it was for me like the best bog standard or not bog standard like it was like the gold bar for a fantasy game at the time and i feel like a lot of the games I got into later, like when I got into Elder Scrolls or Dragon Age or, or things like that, were built on a foundation that Fable like established for me. So that's definitely a nostalgia game for me in that regard. I didn't like Fable 2, and I hated Fable 3, but Fable 1 still holds a, a, a place for me. And if I could play it with a controller, I have no idea if it would hold up, but I have good memories of it. <laughs> No, I don't think anyone but Slagathor likes Fable 3. She likes Fable 3. Oh, she loves. You have no ideas how many times I have bought and sold Fable 3 over the years when she got bored of it and traded it to buy a different game, and then we ended up buying it back. It wasn't until we got rid of our Xbox 360 that I stopped buying and recent selling Fable. How do you think the original compares to the sequels, or specifically, like, what is it that made them inferior to the original? So, oddly enough, I think, because I only played a little bit of Fable 3, so enough to know I didn't like it, but I played quite a bit of Fable 2, and I feel like the thing that made Fable 2 inferior was, oddly enough, Fable 2 tried to lock onto certain elements and spend a lot of time focusing on that, but by doing it, it kind of threw away other elements that I thought were important. Like, how do I put this properly? So, like, in Fable 1, right, the way your level system kind of works being based on like what you're doing. Uh, you know, if you use your sword, you get like strength experience, use your magic, you get like magic experience, and then you can kind of level them up like independently and you can, you know, have your general experience, stuff like that. And then when Fable 2 tried to do 
kind of its own variation on this, but with like the, adding the whole like gun thing and everything felt a little more, I don't know, for lack of a term, streamlined, but that streamlined made it feel less, less customizable. I think that's a big thing is that like Fable 2, all, all in all, felt a lot less like I was in control of it. Like a lot more of it was predetermined. Uh, even though that like on paper, it should be like, oh, you have more choices. You can like dye your clothes now and stuff like that. But in practice, it felt a lot more limited. And wow. because it's been so many years since I played it, it's hard for me to pin down exact reasons why. But Fable 3 got even worse. Or Fable 3 got like really... Uh, for like return railroady and how you play the game, but which is weird because Peter Molyneux, the guy behind Fable, he's most famous for making promises, these grandiose promises about his games that he can't possibly keep, and he definitely did that with the Fable series. And it just feels weird that as they went on, he seemed to like make them, in my experience anyway, smaller and smaller. So, does that make any sense? Yeah, I get it. And I have heard the stories about Peter Molyneux. He always uh, overpromises. Yep. So I'm curious what the, the new Fable's gonna, you know, be hyped around. No, I mean, what Fable Three was 2000 and when was Fable Three? Is that 2014 or something like that? So I gotta look up the the date now. Fable Three was 2010. So yeah, it's been it's been 10 years. Since, since I don't think we're going to see more Fable IP. So that's why I just, uh, I just want Fable 1 with controller support. Because I have it on Steam right now, but I tried to play a mouse and keyboard and it was a nightmare. So so who owns Fable right now? Is it Microsoft or does Peter Molyneux? I think it's being lauded as, like, there's, there's a new Fable in development. And I think it's going to be Xbox exclusive, but I don't know for sure. It's actually very new. I just I didn't know that. I just googled it. Fable Four revealed on November twelfth this year. So that is extremely new. No wonder I hadn't heard about it. So, hmm. well, color me. Uh, let's go with hopeful but not optimistic. So yeah, I think that's a that's a very twenty twenty mood. Nah, you're not uh, wrong. Fair enough. All right. Well, uh, anyway, so we've been going for about an hour and 10 minutes based on my on my timing here so does i have no concluding thoughts this was just supposed to be like a loose conversation about some as we said nostalgic games but i want to give both of you the opportunity to if you have concluding thoughts give them so arthur you first well on the subject of nostalgic video games uh i feel like my definition of nostalgic has changed over the years which i think is uh natural uh I feel like my version of nostalgia is not something was a stage in video game history that was a little bit awkward because it was when it was making the jump to 3D and there were a lot of hurdles that uh, video games had to overcome before they got to where they are right now. So I just want to say that I get the impression that when people refer to games inspired by uh, nostalgic uh, video games from like the late 80s and the 90s they're usually talking about like late era NES games onward and like Sega Genesis games and Super Nintendo and games that came about during that era where basically it, what they figured out how to do them as best as they could uh, using the technology available at the time and made for some uh, very cool and very memorable experiences experiences that i never really got to experience for myself until uh, not that until 
I until after I made the jump to 3D. But uh, yeah, they're that's kind of what it feels what the gaming landscape the retro gaming landscape looks like right now like that was the era that really marked uh, a lot more people at least of the generation that's uh, making games right now uh, i have been noticing trends that are starting to go towards basically what came next i've been seeing uh, a lot of modern games in the indie scene that are inspired by like early 3d titles or um early 3d uh well uh, first-person shooters, uh, calling it 3D is kind of redundant, but there you go. So yeah, it's um, it's kind of cool that we video games, the, the industry in general, especially like the indie sector, uh, does like looking back on previous generations and seeing what works and refining them for uh, modern generations. All right, you know me, I love a good like concluding thought. So thank you, Arthur. Do you, uh, Ulrich, do you have a concluding thought for us? Yeah, I'm gonna keep it real simple and short because I gotta edit this. Give me the Resistance Trilogy and Twisted Metal 3 and I will buy a PlayStation 5. Buy a PlayStation 5 anyways, but you know what, I'm making demands. Uh, well, if we're gonna have that kind of thing, then I'll just say, give me a remaster of Legend of Dragoon and I will buy whatever console you put it on. <laughs> Whoever's Ooh, listening. That, that, that would also motivate. That was a fun game. I'm curious if it holds up. Uh, I played it last year, and as far as I'm concerned, it still holds up, but that's me, and I'm biased as hell. So, <laughs> anyway, Arthur, that means that it has come time for us to give you the special little soapbox that you can get on top of where you can plug anything you want to plug. Does it have to be video game related? No, no it can literally be you anything you want to plug. Okay. Uh, does it have to be something personal, something that I'm doing? Plug okay. whatever you want. Whatever you want to use this time to plug. This is literally your free time. We don't care what you what you talk about. This is just your time. It's basically thanks you for coming to talk to us. Talk about whatever you want to talk about. Okay, so um, on in lieu of that, um, I would just like to give a shout out to this podcast that I've been getting into. It's called uh, Escape from Vault Disney. It's hosted by this man named Tony Goldmark. He's a big Disney theme park enthusiast. He has this. Uh, uh, internet uh, personality called Some Jerk with a Camera. That's what he calls it. And on this podcast, he randomly reviews uh, content on Disney Plus. He gets together with his friends and they talk about whatever a random number generator uh, tells them to review. It's been going on for about a year. It's been a lot of fun. I like to put it on sometimes when I'm working along with other podcasts, but I only get to plug one thing. So there you go. It, that's uh, Escape from Vault Disney from Tony Goldmark. You can plug more things if you want. You could also say something for Suggestions of the Week, which we're going to do real quick after this. But if you want more things to plug, you go ahead. So. Uh, I think that'll do it for now. Okay. Well, then in that case, let's do a real quick Suggestions of the Week because I think we kind of forgot to <clears throat> parse out time for it. Which, by the way, if uh, if you're a long-time listener, you know. If not, it's just us saying, hey, here's a thing we've been into recently, not related to any conversation, just literally something we've been watching or doing or anything like that that you might be interested in. To give an example, my suggestion of the week, the new Animaniacs. It's good. If you like old Animaniacs and you haven't watched it for some reason – Go watch it. It's on Hulu. It's very good. There's my suggestion. Short, sweet, and to the point. I like it. All right. Ulrich, do you have a suggestion? Yeah, I'm going to go with the podcast as well. I'm going to talk about the Reboot It podcast, which uh, it's the guys from Nerd Goat podcast. It's the guys from Hot Takes with Billy Biz coming together to reboot movies. And 
it's they do a really good job because one, they they don't pull their punches. If they fail, they show it to you. But they also kind of do something to help set themselves apart. Of they also throw in a twist. And the best way I can describe this was one of the twists they threw in for themselves when doing the Indiana Jones reboot, which is a really good episode, was at some point Indy had to say, okay, Boomer. Okay. I'm not going to say how they got around that because that you show it. It's a, it's a, you show it, I watch it for two reasons. One, I want to see the interesting ideas. Some are good or some red, but also because when you get the twist, they almost always find a way to make the twist work in a way of like, okay, that actually feels natural and organic. Holy shit. Um, if you're looking for an episode to start with, I have to suggest their Universal Movie Monsters one. That was one I thought they were absolutely going to whiff it at and fucking knocked it out of the park. Like, I want to see that movie. All right, all right, cool. Uh, Arthur, do you have a suggestion of the week? Uh, I think I do. Uh, recently, uh, well, we were earlier talking about games that I was playing on the Nintendo Wii, and two games in particular that really stood out for me during this era for this console was the No More Heroes games, and those just got re-released on the Switch eShop. So if you've never tried them out before, I really recommend them. They're uh, very... I just dug the hell out of them. They're weird. They're over the top. They're violent. You play as a guy that that's an assassin that uses what's basically an off-brand lightsaber. They're great. It's basically a hack and slash game with Yakuza style humor, but even more over the top, which I know yeah. is saying something. So yeah, <laughs> good games. <laughs> all right. Well, then that brings us to the end. And at, at this point, we want to first of all, thank Arthur again for coming on and chatting with us. No problem. Glad to be here. All right, we'll have to have you on again sometime soon. I mean, you hang out with us enough as it is. got to find another reason to chat with you. <laughs> it won't be too hard. I agree. All right, Ulrich, you want to take us into our outro? All right, well, thank you all for listening. Be sure to like, share, subscribe, do all the things, because that is literally the lifeblood of podcasts. And whatever platform you're currently listening to us on, well, first of all, thank you. Uh, as far as the list I have in front of me says, we are on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Pocket Cast, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. If there is some other platform that would be easier for you to listen to us on that we are not currently on, well, we can't get on it until we know about it. So you got to let us know what that is, and then we can look into it. Please and thank you. As always, this has been Lord Commander Ulrich. And his shield brother, Axel Wright. Be sure to tune in next time, and as always, stay honorable.